This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 6, Race and the Judicial System. Ty Hunter, a veteran civil rights attorney and former director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, Incorporated in Durham, North Carolina, discusses how race has operated in our court systems throughout our history and how it continues to distort justice in the present. On behalf of the Community City Working Group, we are delighted to have Ty Hunter speak to us tonight. Our category, Race and the Judicial System. Ty has lived in it, worked in that system, and probably, he might say, has fought in that system. He's a Tar Heel all the way, and this is a great night to be a Tar Heel, as I understand. Undergraduate law school, he worked as, a, as an appellate defender which the terminology means that's appeals for poor folks and trying to get, if they didn't get a fair trial, that's that level of that. He worked heading the Indigent Defense Services of North Carolina, and that's more the bureaucratic side of getting money out to the public defenders and the, the, the folks that are doing the representation for poor folks. And more recently, he's been the executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, in the state. And right now he's in private practice consulting, probably giving away his advice and legal services because he's that kind of a guy. I think you'll find him a very entertaining speaker, but a very substantive uh, speaker. So let's give a good welcome to Ty Hunter. Uh, I know this neighborhood. I, I grew up just a few miles further west when that was the edge of town uh, in Greensboro. But I remember, of course, Hams. I remember eating at Hams not far from here. I remember McFall's Drugstore, which used to be, which is long gone uh, from over there. So it's nice to be back in, uh, in Greensboro. No matter what Jesus says about prophets in their hometown. Um, uh, I, I suppose it goes without uh, saying that our federal and state courts do not operate in a uh, vacuum of uh, justice and uh, uh, looking at uh, what the law says. Our North Carolina state judges, as most of you probably know, are popularly elected in either partisan or quasi-partisan elections, and the legislature changes those rules as they think it benefits whichever party uh, is in power. Many of you have probably uh, had many elections where you uh, had judges to vote for and you thought to yourself, who in the heck are any of these uh, people? Um, but, we do, so, but we do have popularly elected judges uh, at the state level because there are, there are people who are very interested in continuing that happening. They think it serves their purposes. At one time, I think it was mainly trial lawyers who thought that it served their purposes. And now I think the, uh, the Republican Party that's in uh, control feels like it serves their purposes to have judges partisanly uh, elected. And so uh, that's what we've got. Uh, the appointment of federal judges by the president, I think we all realize that is 
to some extent, a pretty partisan exercise. It certainly is right now, and the uh, consent or non-consent by the Senate. But uh, more than that, more than how people get to be uh, judges, um, the, all the players in the typical courtroom scene are a part of and affected by the larger society that is our United States. Uh, most of you, I'll bet, have heard, I think, Bay Love has been here, is that right? And talked about the groundwater that moves from lake to lake or uh, uh, just or from institution to institution. And so the court system is another one of those institutions that is part of and that is affected by our educational institutions, our political institutions, our law enforcement institutions, and on and on. All of those systems are interrelated and influence one another. For example, in order to get to mass incarceration, I'll talk a little more about this in a little while, but I brought a copy of the new Jim Crow. It's like somebody was plugging the REI training, which I'm also a devotee, so I want to second that. But Michelle Alexander's book is a, is a great, great book. And I always like the uh, subtitle, which you don't hear. You hear the new Jim Crow, and it's Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. But in order to get to mass incarceration, it, it, that's not something the prison did. Uh, and it's, it, it's something that we need the legislature to pass laws. We need prosecutors to prosecute. We need judges to sentence according to the law and also within their discretion. Uh, and then people get to the prison. Uh, so in my important, the most important player in mass incarceration and in most of the policies we have concerning criminal justice and even civil justice are not, I didn't mention above, but those are the people who reward uh, legislators, prosecutors, and judges for perceived toughness on crime, and those are the regular citizens, us. I think we have the criminal justice system uh, we deserve. We have the criminal justice system that most people want. And it is a criminal justice system that has at least one eye at all, and has had it on there for more than, a, more than 150 years on controlling uh, African-Americans in our country. That's, that's been one of their main uh, concerns, more than justice, more than many other things. And so when you have a system that is distracted like that, it is no, no surprise uh, that uh, it, it has problems. Uh, the late, great uh, Julius Chambers founded the first uh, integrated law firm and the preeminent civil rights law firm in North Carolina in Charlotte in the 1960s. And one of his founding partners uh, was James Ferguson II. He, he joined the law firm in 1968. Uh, both were sons of Jim Crow uh, North Carolina. Uh, Chambers grew up in uh, Montgomery County, uh, which I think is just a little bit north and east of Charlotte, and Ferguson in Buncombe County. You all know where that is, Asheville. And both, when asked why they became lawyers, 
pointed to important incidents that had happened in their younger lives, negative incidents. Chambers' father was an automobile mechanic, and uh, he was pretty well known for being a, a, a pretty good automobile mechanic, so he got lots of business from not just black people, but also from white people. And he had a white client that he did quite a lot of work for, and then the guy said, I'm not going to pay you. He refused to pay for this extensive work that uh, uh, Mr. Chambers had done. And so uh, Mr. Chambers uh, went to see the lawyers in uh, Montgomery County to find someone to represent him to collect the money that he was owed by this white uh, truck operator who had not paid him. And um, he could not find anybody. This was in the late post-war 1940s uh, uh, North Carolina. He could not find anybody who was willing uh, to represent him. Uh, for this really pretty straightforward uh, uh, case of um, uh, failing to pay for services. And uh, Chambers uh, said later that he decided that he would be uh, that, that lawyer. <clears throat> uh, James Ferguson II, his uh, longtime partner, was at a school dance at his segregated high school in Asheville when several of his closest friends confided in him that they had been talking to some white girls in town and had agreed to meet them that night at a local park. And they invited uh, 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 James Ferguson uh, to uh, tag along. Um, but it just so happened that uh, uh, Mr. Ferguson was more interested in somebody who was at the dance that they were at, and so he didn't go. And to make a long story, a long predictable story short, those young men who did go to meet those white girls at the park ended up charged with uh, rape, which was a capital crime at that time. And even though they were innocent, uh, they, they all pled guilty and served very significant prison terms uh, in uh, North Carolina uh, to avoid uh, the very real danger uh, that they would uh, get the uh, death penalty. And so that incident had an impact on James Ferguson and inspired him <coughs> to be the lawyer um, that he wanted to be. Um, uh, Chambers and Ferguson went on to very, very long, distinguished careers, and in fact, uh, uh, James Ferguson II is still at it. He was one of uh, he was co-counsel with me and some other people in Racial Justice Act litigation we did in Fayetteville a couple of uh, years ago. Um, but those problems of the civil courts being largely unavailable to African Americans and I would say all non-rich peoples seeking to correct injustices and the the criminal courts used as an instrument to enforce the racial hierarchy are still with us. I don't say this with any happiness or pride as it's already been, I've already been ratted out as a member of the tribe and a, uh, and a participant in, in our court system for um, 40 years now. But it, I, I just think we, we have to acknowledge a problem if we're going to do something about it.
Um, access to our civil courts is now basically a luxury item like having a fancy car or a uh, second home. Otherwise, there's, there is no meaningful uh, access to civil courts uh, for anybody. Um, and the disproportionate, disproportionate arrest, prosecution, and incarceration of black men in particular has been well documented, perhaps best and most persuasively by uh, Ms. Alexander in her book, uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And I'm just gonna read one short, not too short, quote uh, from uh, Ms. Alexander's book. And she says, a bit of common sense is overdue in public discussions about racial bias in the criminal justice system. The great debate over whether black men have been targeted by the criminal justice system or unfairly treated in the war on drugs often overlooks the obvious. What is painfully obvious when one steps back from individual cases and specific policies is that the system of mass incarceration operates with stunning efficiency to sweep people of color off the streets, lock them in cages, and then release them into an inferior second-class status. Nowhere is this more true than in the war on drugs. The central question then is how exactly does a formally colorblind criminal justice system achieve such racially discriminatory results? Rather easily, it turns out. The process occurs in two stages. The first step is to grant law enforcement officials extraordinary discretion regarding whom to stop, search, arrest, and charge for drug offenses, thus ensuring that conscious and unconscious racial beliefs and stereotypes will be given free reign. Unbridled discretion inevitably creates huge racial disparities. Then the damning step. Close the courthouse doors to all claims by defendants and private litigants that the criminal justice system operates in racially discriminatory fashion. Demand that anyone who wants to challenge racial bias in the system offer in advance clear proof that the racial disparities are the product of intentional racial discrimination, i.e. the work of a bigot. This, everyone knows, this evidence will almost never be available in the era of colorblindness because everyone knows but does not say that the enemy in the war on drugs can be identified by race. The simple, this simple design has helped to produce one of the most extraordinary systems of racialized social control the world has ever seen. Um, I wanted to give you some uh, figures uh, about the change that's occurred in our country concerning uh, the number of people that are incarcerated. In 1920, there were about 150,000 people in our jails and prisons in the whole, in the whole country, with a lot of people. In 1970, <clears throat> which I remember quite well, it's a tumultuous time in our nation, there were about 400,000 uh, people. So up pretty fast in 50 years from 150,000 to 400,000. In 2013, there were more than 
220,300 people in our jails and prisons. There are another 4.75 that are on parole or on probation, mostly cycling, getting ready to go back to prison for someone else to be on parole. Black male incarceration rate is 4.7%. 4.7% of the black males in this country are in prison. Um, if you're a Hispanic male, your, your uh, chances are, the rate is only 1.8%. White males, only 0.7% of white males are in prison. So white people are doing pretty, pretty good. And then once you bring the ladies in, of course it drops even lower. The incarceration rate is only about 0.4%. That's great, right? Well, that is if, as a white person in the United States, you wanna compare yourself to the incarceration of people of color. You're doing a lot better than they're doing. But let's look at all the other white people in the world. And what rate are they getting incarcerated? The incarceration rate for white people in the United States is three times the incarceration in England. It's four times the incarceration in France. It's five times the incarceration in Germany. I'm not even gonna talk about Denmark. But this is where we came from. This is where we came from. So what happened that we come from a place where they treat people who get in trouble so differently. And of course what happened is chattel slavery and racism. This is a critical point that lots of people don't get. I think people understand the part of racism which advantages whites and uh, disadvantages um, people who aren't white. But this racialized favoritism of whites in the U.S. makes U.S. whites have better outcomes than U.S. blacks in almost everything, but that same system gives U.S. whites less favorable outcomes than European whites in almost everything. In other words, if we look globally, the system of racial advantage in the United States hurts us all. And it's only when we compare ourselves to non-whites in the United States that it looks like it's a real benefit. At the same time we have turned to mass incarceration and putting more and more people in prison, our courts have made it harder and harder and almost impossible for prisoners to access the criminal court system to review the fairness of their convictions or sentence. And they have also made it harder and harder, almost impossible, to get access to the civil courts to contest the conditions of imprisonment, like adequate food and health care, especially mental health care. Our courts have almost entirely sealed off the prisons from court review. And this has been done in a series of decisions and with the approval of our legislature, the cheering of our legislatures, so that whatever happens in prison, it's like Las Vegas, it stays in prison. And there's, there is no meaningful review uh, by anybody of what, ha and so no wonder. No, and so of course we get 
the, the prisons that, that we deserve and, and prisons that are terrible, that are not doing anything to help people straighten out, but are really making their lives uh, more, more miserable. Our publicly funded systems for access to the courts, public defenders, legal aid offices have never been adequately funded or staffed are under ever-increasing pressure right now. I would say the worst in my whole career, and it was, it's never been good, not to do more with less, but to do less with less. Because that's really the goal, is not to save money, but to reduce access to the courts for the poor and for people who aren't white. Now, while mass incarceration uh, on the current U.S. scale is new, really exploded in the 80s and the 90s, as I, I was telling you a little earlier, race, the racialized justice system is not new. We have always had a racialized uh, criminal justice system. Uh, Douglas Blackman, I didn't bring the book, uh, it, but another book that I would recommend is called Slavery by Another Name which records how chattel slavery was almost immediate re, re, immediately replaced by a new system of forced labor run through our courts and prison systems as soon as uh, right after emancipation. As I'm sure most of you know, I, have to, I am embarrassed to admit this, but I did not know this until I went to law school, the 13th Amendment doesn't completely abolish slavery. How many people knew that? It, 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 the 13th Amendment says we can't have slavery except, and I'm quoting here, as a punishment for a crime. So our Constitution permits the continuation of slavery for people who have been convicted of a crime. And so there were people that picked up on that right away. And so we continued, and there were actually least, people were leased out of prison in the United States after emancipation uh, uh, to, to uh, go work in factories all over this country. Um, now, there has been some reaction, it seems to me, at long last uh, to this, the, the problem of mass incarceration. Not, I don't think, because most people are convinced by Ms. Alexander's race thesis, but because more and more white and rural Americans have been caught up in the uh, war on drugs. First, the methamphetamine epidemic, which was almost entirely white and rural, led to many, many harsh sentences for people in the heartlands, in the rural white areas of the United States. More, more recently, what used to be heroin addicts have now become victims of opioid addiction. And that is because heroin has come to white and to middle class people in this country. And so now we have the amazing spectacle of presidential candidates going up in New England and expressing concern about we don't have enough uh, programs to help people who are addicted to uh, heroin and it's because it's white people now. 
And now, and of course, it's always been some white people, but it, it has really gotten into the, into the middle class now. And so now presidential candidates are talking not about being tough on crime, but drug addiction as a public health problem. So, and even our dysfunctional Congress is on the verge, it's hard to believe it'll actually happen, of passing the first bill in my lifetime to somewhat reduce prison time for thousands of, uh, of federal prisoners. And so why has that happened? Because the public and then our leaders preserve that white skin is at risk. That is the change. So I'm happy about it. But I, th I think what we all have to understand is that white skin is in all of this. And we're not just doing something for somebody else, we're doing something to, to save our country. Um, if you look at the history of our court system, it has been for the great majority of its existence, I would say all of its existence, a very important symbol and tool of white power and privilege. In Jim Crow days, this was, couldn't be more explicit. The courthouses were like all public places during Jim Crow, strictly segregated with separate seating, water fountain, doors, bathrooms. So our legislature's current concern about who uses which bathrooms, that's not new. We have had, we've had a big concern about who uses what bathroom for decades and decades, for centuries. In old, you can go to old courthouses if you ever go somewhere, especially a courthouse that hasn't been torn down, rebuilt, courthouse that's been around for 50 or 60 years. You can look around and figure out if there's a balcony in, that, in a big courtroom, that's where the black people had to sit. If, there, if, if, there, if you go work your way down to the basement, which is probably not even uh, public uh, uh, access anymore, that's where the bathrooms were uh, for uh, Af African Americans. Now, of course, it's more subtle, subtle in some respects. Where is the most, this is, this is a, for you to answer, where is the most common site for memorial statues in honor of Confederate soldiers? In front of the courthouse. The great majority of North Carolina County Court... You, I don't know what's wrong with Guilford because you have to go all the way down to Hamburger Square to find a Civil War memorial in Greensboro. But in the great majority, in, in Orange County, we got a big... We got a big uh, memorial right in front of the uh, right in front of the courthouse, um, and so almost all of our uh, county courthouses have a statue of a Confederate soldier standing guard uh, near uh, the front steps. There's a funny scene in the uh, TV uh, 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 show People versus O.J. Is anybody watching that show? People versus I hate lawyer shows, I love that show. <laughs> I, think, I think that show is great, and there's a great scene, I think it was just last week, where Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey, two very famous celebrity lawyers, Johnny Cochran's a 
black man, F. Lee Bailey, so a white guy from uh, Boston. But anyway, they're on the OJ defense team, and they travel to Winston-Salem to get an interstate subpoena enforced. Uh, this is a, um, a Mark Furman, who many of you will remember as the infamous L.A. Police Department detective, had done an extensive series of interviews with a woman who was wanted to write a screenplay about the L.A. Police Department. And so he talked to her for hours and said lots of stuff that was horrible, racist stuff, lying in court stuff, you know, very swaggering, bragging about, you know, what a tough guy and rogue he was and, and, and everything. And he was the, a key investigator in O.J. Simpson's case. So his defense team caught wind of this. And so they tried to subpoena uh, this uh, would-be um, screenwriter. Well, she had moved from Hollywood to Winston-Salem. I assume she got a job at the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem and was teaching screenwriting. So anyway, she's in Winston-Salem minding her own business, and she gets this interstate subpoena, which she resists, to turn over all these interviews with Mark Furman. And so there's a whole you know, agreement among all the states that they're going to honor these interstate uh, subpoenas. And so this should have been a pro forma trip over here uh, to get the uh, subpoena honored. Um, and so uh, uh, they come to uh, Winston-Salem. It's Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey. And uh, they go into court. Johnny Cochran doesn't even really get that fired up for him. You know, he figures this is just going to, he can use his C game and still uh, take care of this. And so he goes in and, 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 and just shines the low beams uh, in this uh, Winston-Salem courtroom. And the judge is completely cold and dismissive and denies his request, which is really pretty extraordinary. Um, on the way to their car, this is in the TV show that's recounting this scene, Bailey, F. Lee Bailey, Riley points out to the statue nearby of the Confederate soldier, which is in front of the uh, courthouse in uh, Forsyth County, or near the courthouse, and he says, maybe you should let me lead in North Carolina. And of course, the message is, F. Lee Bailey gets it, Johnny Cochran gets it, is that that, that Confederate soldier is a, is a sign it's a sign of white power. This isn't your place. This is our place. That's why we've got that Confederate soldier there. And so to finish it up, they do go to the Court of Appeals and eventually get the, uh, 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 get the subpoena. So this white branding of public space, I would go further and say is neither unconscious, and not just white branding, but really racist, white supremacist branding, is neither unconscious nor is it unintentional. Uh, many of you, I'll bet, have heard about the Confederate monument near Franklin Street in my hometown, Chapel Hill, on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. Silent Sam, how many people have heard about or seen um, Silent Sam? 
This was nominally constructed under the auspices of the Daughters of the Confederacy. But the main fundraiser for this and fundraiser for a number of other Confederate memorials that were uh, dedicated and put up around the state at around the same time was a man named Julian Shakespeare Carr, C-A-R-R, a wealthy tobacco, he was one of the richest men in North Carolina. He was a wealthy tobacco trader and industrialist who also happened to be a huge apologist. He had gotten in at the very end of the Civil War. He was 16 years old. He, he dropped out of um, uh, UNC as a student and spent about six months, as far as I can tell, pretending to be a soldier, then the war was over. But then that was his huge, his huge uh, hobby for the rest of his life. So he was a huge apologist for the Confederacy and avid supporter of white supremacy. As the main fundraiser behind the new memorial, Carr was given the honor of making the principal speech at the dedication. And this speech, and the, here's the great thing, his personal manuscript is available online. You can, you can look him up, you can get a copy of, his, of the speech uh, that he made. And I cannot, cannot do it justice, but I will just give you some excerpts. This was on June the 2nd, 1913. He not only compares the Confederate soldiers to the Knights of the Round Table, which made me think that's where the, knight, the Ku Klux Klan, that's why they're Knights, because they, they think they're Knights of the Round Table too. But he compares them to the Knights of the Round Table. He credited the defeated Confederate soldiers, of course he was one for about six months, with defending the Anglo-Saxon race during the terrible years after the war when the bottom plank of the fence replaced the top plank. Is, is that clear enough for everybody, what he's talking about when he said he's being a little poetic, I think. So when the bottom plank of the fence replaced the top plank, and as a result of this valiant effort, the Anglo-Saxon race is the purest in the South than anywhere else in the world, which is, of course, <coughs> Couldn't be a bigger lie, but um, that's, that's his story, and he's uh, sticking. So he just, he just goes on and on. Uh, he then addresses a story about his own participation uh, in this uh, great effort at, at keeping the uh, Anglo-Saxon race pure after the war by bragging about the fact that shortly after he got back to Chapel Hill, he horsewhipped a black woman, those are not the terms he used, until her skirts hung in shreds because she had publicly insulted a white lady. So this is the speech that was given at the, uh, at the dedication of Silent Sam on the UNC campus. So when te someone tells you that these monuments are just there for history, well, of course they're right. They are there to mark history. But it is a history that seldom gets told. It is about the history, to use Mr. Carr's words, of trying to keep that top plank on top and that bottom plank on the bottom. Now, let me give you two final notes. I could talk, I learned so much about Mr. Carr. 
I noticed somebody with the Duke sweatshirt. I just want you to know, Mr. Carr contributed the land for Trinity College, which was, of course, what Duke was before it was. He spread his filth on all of the major institutions <laughs> in uh, North Carolina, not just Chapel Hill. Um, he contributed the land. Trinity used to be in Alamance County. I never knew this. And it moved because Mr. Carr bought a beautiful piece, piece of land in what was outside Durham, and then they moved it there. And then, of course, some more delightful characters, more tobacco industrialists, uh, 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 then uh, changed the name uh, to Duke. Um, so uh, two final notes for Mr. Carr. Yes, Carborough is named for this guy. Carborough used to be called Venable after a former president of uh, UNC, and they changed the name to Carr because he bought the big, uh, if you've ever been to the Carmel Mall, he bought that mall. That mall used to be called the Alberta Cotton uh, Factory. He bought that factory, and he, he, uh, he put electricity in, and he agreed to extend the electricity to the little mill village, which then existed around the Carmel Mall, in exchange for them changing the name of the town to Carborough, and that's why uh, Carborough is Carborough. Um, and then here's the final thing I'll say about him. In 1923, UNC awarded him an honorary degree, 10 years after this speech. So, go heels. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's probably enough about these uh, uh, Confederate soldiers. I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, jury participation in, um, in criminal cases. Let me look at my time. Um, uh, well, of course, enslaved persons were ineligible to be jurors at, you know, of course. In North Carolina, in fact, if a slave was brought before a court, and they were occasionally brought before a court, there were special slave tribunals heard criminal cases involving enslaved persons, and the only persons who could serve on the juror, jury were slave owners. Of course. From emancipation until about mid-20th century, Black people were never on juries in North Carolina, despite the fact that there was no explicit legal impediment. In fact, our Constitution suggested that really black and white people were supposed to be treated the same, so of course they could be on juries, but they were not. There were various facially non-racial categories similar to the devices that were used to deny black people the right to vote, the same sort of thinking the same sort of tests, the same sort of uh, either economic tests or other tests uh, were used uh, to prevent uh, 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 black people uh, from being on juries and to ensure that the juries were all white. Usually the exclusion was done at the jury pool stage. And here I've got to explain a little bit of boring information about juries. How many people have been called to be a juror? Okay, well, when you're called, you're put in a big jury pool. So when you're called, you're in a jury pool, and then you get there, and you hope, hope, hope that you don't get called to actually be on 
the pettit jury, or even worse, the grand jury, where they keep you for like a year. So, uh, so for, for, for the first hundred years or so after emancipation, things were controlled at the jury pool calling stage. There was somebody, the clerk of court, and maybe a couple of other people would sit around, and they would draw names of people to be in the jury pool, and when they came to somebody who was black, they, that person would be found to be not appropriate for some reason, and so they were never, were never in the pool. Now, when you, got, when you got to your trial, a lot of these same places, they made a big show of how impartial they were about picking who was actually going to be on the pettit jury, and they actually, in some uh, counties, had a, a tradition of having children pick the names out. Children would come and pick the names out for the pettit jury, but they'd already s cleaned out all the non-whites uh, before uh, they got uh, uh, to that point. Eventually, after uh, uh, years and decades and years and decades, the Supreme Court of the United States got a little bit interested in this issue. And finally, by the mid-20th century, there were rulings and laws that required black people in the jury pool to roughly correlate with the population. And so no longer could these county clerks and, and, uh, and jury commissioners get away with excluding all or almost all of the black people from the jury pool. Somebody was looking now, and, they had it, and the jury pool had to look more or less like uh, uh, the county in terms of the, the population. And so that moved things to the next stage, where the court did nothing uh, to control the prosecutor's right, which was the right enjoyed by both sides, not just prosecutors, but defense lawyers, to exclude qualified jurors for no announced reason at all. At all. This power to peremptorily exclude qualified jurors was much prized by trial lawyers on both sides. We love to be able to do this, kick people off the jury. And so, Interestingly, if you go back and look at, at our history of uh, having peremptory excusals, um, it was originally uh, reserved only for the defendant, but the prosecutors lobbied their legislatures for fair play and were soon allowed a, uh, a similar number or equal number as, uh, of peremptory challenges on their own. And prosecutors and defendants got expanded numbers of peremptories at about the same time that black people started getting into these jury pools. Kind of an amazing coincidence. These peremptory challenges hadn't been that important. But then they got a lot more important in the uh, second half of the 20th centuries. And then that's where the action has been since then is that uh, blacks have been routinely excluded from pettit juries by peremptory challenges, uh, which by tradition did not need to be justified or explained. You just said, I'm excusing you, thank you very much. Has nothing to do with not being qualified, nothing to do with not being fair. Just has to do with the uh, 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 lawyer on either side not liking uh, your looks. And of course, this was used since 
black people in, in the great majority of uh, counties were a minority already. This was, this was a very convenient and easy device to use to continue uh, to ensure that black people were either totally excluded or, uh, or large, grossly underrepresented um, in uh, jury trials, including trials, and I would say especially trials where the defendant was a black person. Because they might not care that much if the defendant was a white person, and they figured the black person wouldn't care that much. But while it's okay for white people to sit on juries for white people, we, we, don't, get that, we don't get that emotionally involved with other white people. And I think that's actually true, really. Um, but black people, on the other hand, nah, they wouldn't necessarily be reliable to sit on a jury where it's a black person who was accused. And so that's, I think that's a lot of the thinking. And so black people have been up until and including today are disproportionately excluded. Uh, and the court has issued a couple of opinions over the years uh, to try and uh, make it harder uh, for uh, uh, people to uh, do this, for lawyers uh, to do this, but they really haven't quite uh, got there. Um, they, uh, in Swain v. Alabama, they attempted to make this right uh, enforceable. That was in 1965, and then that didn't really do anything. And then they decided Batson, which lawyers were kind of excited about 1986, that was decided. Um, but that really hasn't uh, accomplished uh, very much either. So it's illegal to intentionally uh, excuse somebody because of their race, but it is practically impossible to prove. So it, it uh, continues. Uh, the, the North Carolina uh, passed the uh, Racial Justice Act in 2009 and gave, in just in death penalty cases, gave uh, 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 people who were on death row the right to litigate um, race discrimination, including race discrimination in jury uh, selection. And so that motivated a lot of lawyers to go back and look at uh, the jury selection um, uh, when at the time they felt pretty hopeless with the uh, just relying on the uh, Supreme Court of, North, of the United States cases. And so they had a big study done, and lo and behold, to nobody's surprise, it showed that, in fact, uh, uh, black people were excused from these, juror, these juries at about between two and three times the rate of white people. And, of course, the prosecutors say, well, we're getting rid of these people because they had a family member who had had, who had, had some tangle with the law, and so uh, we, didn't, we thought they might have a grudge uh, uh, against, the, uh, uh, against the prosecutors or the state, and, or, uh, or, or uh, this person, it would be a hardship, it would be an economic hardship for this person to serve because they have two kids at home or they have a job and it's going to be very hard for them. And of course, all of those things were in some of these cases. But the, the bad thing for, for the prosecutors was when these people from Michigan State University came down and did this study is that there were plenty of white people with the same issues. And it turned out that that was only really a problem if, if you had an economic hardship and you're black. 
if you had someone in your family who had been in criminal trouble and you're black, then it turns out that's like a, what do they call it in Powerball? That's like a multiplier. <laughs> so these problems that are things that sound legitimate on the face of it, this is, oh, I got rid of that person because her second cousin had gotten a DUI five years ago. And uh, say, okay, and then you go back and you see that, that, that that's only a concern uh, when, when the juror is, is African-American and wants to, uh, wants to get rid of them anyway. Uh, to make a long story about the, uh, the life and death of the Racial Justice Act, we had a couple of hearings. A uh, judge agreed with us, found that there was wholesale uh, uh, discrimination against African-Americans in jury selection in capital cases. Uh, the legislature's, I'm expecting like some kind, you know, the order of the longleaf pine, something, a metal, something. No, the legislature repeals the uh, statute. They say, well, that was a mistake to do that. And then the Supreme Court has since reversed all the four cases, not saying that anything the judge found was wrong, but he says we, he, we didn't give the state long enough to get ready for the hearing. They had three years. Three years. Anyway. Um, I think I'm going to let you all talk pretty soon, and uh, we, can, uh, we, we can have a discussion about this. I could, like most lawyers, I can go on and on and on. Um, you know, race has played and continues to play a powerful and illegitimate role in our courts. And again, I just want to emphasize, it's not just the courts. It's not just the police. It's not just the schools. They're, it's all working together. It's all working together. Um, but the courts, in my view, have a particular problem in that they are very dedicated to the idea that they are fair and impartial like Fox News. Um, and, and when you're coming from a place where, you, where a big part of your identity is this idea of your fairness and your impartiality, for somebody to come in and tell you, well, I'm just looking at, I'm not looking at what your motives are, I'm looking at what you do, and what you do shows you're not fair and impartial. But that, that's very hard, very hard uh, for the uh, uh, courts uh, to deal with. And they have, and our Supreme Court, none of our courts have really done a good job of working on and thinking about how we can root out uh, race discrimination in court system. They really like this model of you have to show conscious, intentional discrimination, which basically you can't show unless you get a confession and people are not inclined to confess that they did something on account of race even though you can show what they did so many times that it's perfectly obvious and and I think this is true for white people especially we feel like our good intentions that's an armor for anything if our intentions are good I don't want to hear anything about it. But unfortunately, despite our intent, and I don't think all these people necessarily do have good intentions, but let's just assume they do. 
there's still a lot of discriminating going on. And we, we have to get at that, and we have to get past this idea of, uh, of, of white good intentions, of, of white purity of thought as, um, as, as being a bar or an, uh, to uh, really looking at what is in fact uh, happening, which gets us back to Michelle Alexander, which is the same point she makes. She says, don't get hung up on you know, who is doing something wrong. Look at what's happening. Look at what's happening to African-American men in this country. We've got to change it. And, and we can't wait until a lot of uh, people uh, uh, confess. And again, I don't think they're the problem. I think we are the problem. We are the problem and we are the solution. I'm on a, uh, a local uh, 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 advisory council for the Chapel Hill Police Department. And I told them, they asked, I filled out this application, and I said, well, I, do ha I have a particular interest in race. And so they knew that when they, when they got me. And so I have had a particular interest in race um, uh, since I've, I've been over there. And I've had some very interesting uh, uh, conversations uh, with the uh, police chief, who I think is a pretty good guy. And he says, you know, he says, part of our problem, he says, the police, you know, end up being in situations where they stop people. Uh, Wanda and I are on a listserv in our neighborhood. And someone wrote to the listserv and complained that a non-white uh, uh, person who was uh, a nanny for th their children in our neighborhood was parked near the bus stop waiting for the two kids she was in charge of uh, to get off the school bus so she could drive them home, which those kids don't live that far away. They should be walking, but anyway, <laughs> she's up there. She's, she's waiting in the car. Well, someone drops a dime on her. Someone in our neighborhood calls and says there's a suspicious car in our neighborhood. And so the police come. And so the, the person in the, in the neighborhood is, you know, is upset about this, that the police have come and harassed. And it doesn't really matter how polite the police are, and sometimes they're very polite, which even makes you matter. You know what's going on. They're accusing you of something. They think you're out of place, and they think you're doing something wrong. And so my, my uh, uh, friend, the uh, police chief, he says, what am I supposed to do when someone from the community calls and says there's a suspicious car? Am I supposed to ignore that? You know, what if, what if it is somebody there ends up being a burglary? But, and he says, he says this happens every day in Chapel Hill, the bluest city in North Carolina, that someone will call and say, well, there's a suspicious person hanging out in front of uh, the restaurant. And he says now he's sort of trained his police officers to, you know, dig a little deeper and say, well, what's suspicious about him? Well, it's an African-American and he says, is that the suspicious thing? And yes, it is. That's the suspicious thing. And so the police say, we're not going, which is progress. But the point is, a lot of these interactions the police have, they will tell you they're initiated by the public. The public is saying, come protect me because there's some person who's not white who's in my neighborhood, who's making me feel uneasy.
And that happens hundreds, maybe thousands of times in the United States every day. That's on us. That's not on the police. That's on us. And we've, we, we need to uh, uh, do something about that and, you know, several other things in the United States as well. So let me, let me stop and, uh, and let's have some discussion. If people have reaction, if people have questions, if people have speeches they want to make, five-minute limit on speeches. Yeah. She's a ringer. I don't want any questions from her. Yeah. Hi, Ty. My name is Melanie Rodenbow, and I was an assistant public defender here in Guilford County. I remember the name. 1982 to 1987. And uh, one thing that uh, you didn't touch on, and Michelle Alexander does talk about it in her book, and that I recall so vividly, is the extraordinary power that the prosecutor has to make decisions about who is going to get charged, about what that person's going to get charged with, and also about the kind of plea bargaining that will be done. And I think there is um, ample opportunity for racism in all of the race-based decision-making in all of those stages. And um, the second thing I would just note is that there's also such a disadvantage that a young poor person of any color, but particularly a young poor black person has coming into criminal court, whether it's judge or jury, because this, the very same offense can be present with a white person, and that white young white person will have mom and dad and three sets of grandparents and the minister and everybody else in there talking about what a great kid he is and how this is just a mistake, and the young black kid will have virtually nobody and is considered expendable and disposable and has a criminal record before you know it. So that's that's just, yeah. it's a big, big problem. Yeah. No, well, I'll, I'll just talk about the, the second thing first. There, one, of, one of the big problems we have and this is a problem with police, this is a problem with parents, this is a problem with all of us, is we see some young white kid in uh, Chapel Hill smoking marijuana, and we figure that's a student, he's experimenting, <laughs> you know, he's gonna be a, you know, something in 10 years, and then you see some young black kid smoking marijuana in Chapel Hill, and that is an incipient criminal who needs to be stopped and taken care of and get, get under control now before he goes on to do whatever the worst thing he's gonna do. And there's just two different ways of looking at exactly the same behavior. And that's why when you go down to Chapel Hill, which has probably the highest proportion of white people between the ages of 18 and 25 of any city in North Carolina. Those people smoke marijuana. I don't know how many people got kids down there. I'm not saying everybody. <laughs> but that's the age group that's smoking marijuana. And yet if you look at the marijuana arrests in Chapel Hill, apparently it's all black people. It's crazy. And it's because not because the police go, I don't think, I don't think the police go out and say, okay, I'm gonna find a black person today. It's because they see things and they just read it differently based on race. 
And it's not just white cops, it's black cops too, I think. And so that's a, that's a huge problem. And the first step to solving that problem is for people to understand that they've got it. And to their credit, the police in a lot of places, uh, I think including in Greensboro now, are starting to get some training in implicit bias, which is like step one. That's the little baby step, the least scary thing. Uh, for them to talk about, and so they love they love to get a little training in implicit bias, which is a start, because what that has to do with is this idea that we just react differently, and race is part of what we see. Now, on your first point about prosecutors, they're horrible, I completely agree. There's really nothing more to say about that. No, they do have, they do have a huge amount of power. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to me you can have somebody who you went to law school with, who you know barely got out of law school, and then the next time you see them, they're in charge of some big court deciding whether people are going to go to prison or not. And they really have more power than the judges. And it's and you know some people, some people do a pretty good job with that, but power, as we all know, is kind of a great revealer of character. And, uh, and, 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 and so we do have a system where uh, th these youngsters who just get out of law school have huge, huge amounts of discretion and power. And, you know, they know one thing they know is there's not going to be a story about them putting someone in jail for six months, but there might be a story about them giving somebody a break and then that person going out and committing another crime. <coughs> yes, ma'am, did you have your hand up? Yes. I remember... Um Michelle Alexander stating one fact that uh, Martin Luther King would not have taken no for an answer. We've become a little too tame. We've, we're ready to take no for an answer and go on to something else. And I don't think that's right. Here, here. Oh, go. Go, sir. Hi, my name is Byron Gladden. Political plug here. I'm running for school board, District 7. I'll throw that in there. I was worried you were an assistant district attorney there for me. Well, I wanted to speak to an issue locally that I recently found out about the details, and that's dealing with our teen court system here. And the fact that the children who are sent to teen court have to plead guilty whether they are or aren't. And to me, that's a version of modern-day education peonage because these children who are being referred, mind you, 43% of SRO referrals go to teen court. And their numbers last year were 399. 96.3% of the 399 was referrals from law enforcement agencies. And of that, 43% were from SROs. And this is a case to where we're seeing disproportionate numbers to where you have a white child at Northern who gets accused of assault with a deadly weapon, as an example, not recommended for charge. You have a child at Grimsley who shoves and it's being recommended either you are going to be charged with an affray or you go to teen court. Now keep in mind, teen court gets $499 a child. 
No. The average program is 120 days, and they have to complete with a certificate of completion in order to not have it on their record. This is what we're talking about here in Guilford County. Yeah. Now, I'm not, you know, so against SROs and so for SROs. I understand their purpose, the original intended purpose, but we've got to look at that we well, have gotten tell, away. Tell me what you think their original intended purpose was. I'd be interested to hear that. <laughs> well, the, well, the original intended purpose, as has been told to me, is dealing with you have... Um, Gang violence, drugs, those the, the, those areas. Gang violence, drugs, or um, mass mass fights, or something like that. But you, what you're what you're seeing is more and more on national and local news is that SROs are being brought in unnecessarily right. into disciplinary you're exactly issues. right. And so you're having them charging, and if they're called by an administrator, they have to go. So yeah. what you all saw with the black girl on television in South Carolina, and people are saying, you know, that's horrible what, what he did to her. It's horrible what that administration did to the cop as well, because he was overqualified to go into that room. That was a disciplinary issue. It wasn't a police officer issue. I would say he was issue. underqualified to go into well, that yes, room. Well, yes, anyway, underqualified, but overqualified because he's a full cop. Whatever. But, know, yeah, but this is a local issue here, and this is going on in teen court. And when you're looking at the cost of this program, it goes higher and higher. And we have children, you know, black and white, but you have a disproportion going through that program. These children are learning at the ages of 9 and 8 and 10 and 13 what a plea bargain is. Yeah. And this is something that is going on in Guilford County, and I'm advocating to, to, you know, to, to put an end to it in terms of being referred to from an SRO or school effective to the teen court program. Um, just to talk about SROs here, there were no SROs in the segregated schools I went to. There was no SRO at Dudley, which was all black then. Even at Dudley, they didn't need an SRO. It was only when we integrated the schools that all of a sudden there's, it's so dangerous that we need these SROs. I, uh, Wanda and I have a friend who's on the school board in Durham, and we were talking about SROs with that person in the school board in Durham, and she says, well, we can't get rid of the SROs or all the, the white people we've still got going to public schools will not go anymore. So it's, it, it's clear what the SROs are there for. They're to protect the white people from the dangerous black people. That's what the SROs are for. They weren't the, I used to, I saw epic fights at Grimsley High School uh, when I was there, and I never saw a police officer. We had a great big assistant principal. That was his job. And so this whole idea of criminalizing, you know, stupid kid behavior is, is, is another one of these byproducts of integration and of, 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 and of white people's fear about desegregating the schools. And you know this, I'm sure, but when white people are afraid, you gotta be afraid. Was Grimsley integrated when you went to school? No. Well, there might have been one, or I graduated in 1969, there might have been one or two freedom of choice. So the whites were all just fighting against yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was... <laughs> For back then, educators weren't afraid to sued to death by parents when they had to get in there and break up fights either. So, and so the other... You touched on about five hot-button issues for me, and let me just talk about one other. Another one is, is the fees that poor people are expected to pay when they go to court. 
We, we are killing people. This is what our fabulous legislature does. They cut taxes off the top for state taxes, and then they jack up the fees in court. So that basically our court system is being run on the backs of mostly poor people who are going through there. So if, if, I, get a, if I get a speeding ticket... You know, I, I have to pay the $200 or whatever it is, and I don't like that. But that, you know, that's a mosquito bite. There are lots of other people that that 200 bucks stops, stops their month. And in fact, they don't show up for court because they can't pay and they don't want to go through the ritual humiliation that you go through in court when you can't pay. And so then their license gets suspended. And then, and, then they go, and then they get arrested for driving with their license suspended. It, it is ridiculous uh, the, the amount we're charging people in fees for these things. You know, in, I forget where it is, somewhere in Scandinavia, they charge you, when you get a DUI, the a fine you get is based on your, uh, on your income. And so there was some really rich multimillionaire in, I forget where it was, Sweden or somewhere, and he got a DUI, and they were charging him like 800,000 bucks. <laughs> and he said, he said, he said he was going to move, which of course it's easy for him to do. He can go wherever his money is, I guess down in the Caribbean somewhere. And, but, you know, so he got a fine, and even for him, he pays his 800,000, He's still got like $50 million. So, so really, there's no way to make it comparable to what you do when you take $200 away from a poor person because they don't have it. They can't pay their rent the next month. And so that's another thing we have to do something about. And those fees have just gone up and up and up, transferring the cost of the court system from the taxpayers, which... We should all be supporting the court system and transferring it to poor people who are down there. And it's just a collection. It's just a collection scheme. They're getting millions and millions of dollars and making those people's lives worse when we should be making them better. So you shouldn't have mentioned that to me. Uh, Rob Martin. Hey, a um, couple questions, I guess. The first one, I assume that the legal profession, judges and, and whatnot, are, are it's becoming more integrated. I'm just curious if that's making any kind of a difference or if it's um, too intrinsically embedded in the system that, 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 that they can't. And I'm also curious if there's any efforts uh, within the law profession itself from the inside out addressing these kinds of issues and, and taking some sort of an action. Well, the first one... I think it does make it, it, it is a first step, it's not sufficient. If you, you know, if you, if you, you, you put an African American in this system that's been working for 200 years in a certain way, the system's not necessarily going to change that much. But, but it, it's, it's a start. And so there has, there, there are more uh, uh, black people. I, I read something, I was going to talk a little about legal education, but I, I, I decided not to. You know, uh, Shaw University used to have a medical school and a law school for African Americans. And then around the same time that Mr. Carr has given his speech, and this happened all over the country, instead of supporting 
and encouraging these black private schools that uh, were providing professional education, they shut them down. They went in and said, you're not doing a good enough job. You don't have enough money. Well, yeah, they didn't have enough money. You should have given them some money, but instead they just shut them all down. And so there was no, there was no place for a person to get a legal edu- a black person to get a legal education in North Carolina from the time Shaw shut down in the early 20th century until North Carolina Central opened in 1939. And when North Carolina Central opened in 1939, the legislature opened it. They did not give them a penny. They did not give them money for one professor. The dean at UNC would come over and voluntarily sort of tutor the one guy who they corralled to be in that first law school class at North Carolina Central. That's the way North Carolina Central got started. And North Carolina Central struggled, struggled, was never given adequate payment until what happened? Now there are more white people at Central than black people. They're doing great. Once the white people had skin in the game, once lots of uh, children of, 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 of white middle class and upper middle class people, they said, you know, I wouldn't mind going to Central. You know, we get a good legal education and the state uh, supplements the cost. And so once Central started, you know, got enough white kids who were there, now all of a sudden they're adequately funded. So, you know, I, I can't even remember what you said that sent me off on that tangent. But I think the, they are trying. They are trying. It is, a, it is a special challenge, I would say, for people who really think of themselves as very upright, like judges and, and, and prosecutors, I would also say. When, when we did this thing saying the prosecutors were racially discriminatory, here's the prosecutor's analysis. Racism is bad, I'm good, therefore I could not be possibly guilty of this. That's the analysis. And, and it's still their analysis. There is, that, that's another uh, sign of, uh, of uh, white people is this great overconfidence in our moral judgment and in our ability to navigate and be fair to people. Uh, white pe- we, we just think we've got it made for that. We're not very good at it, is the truth. And so people are starting, just like the police, there's, oh, they get a little talk about uh, 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 implied, you know, implicit bias, and so they're starting, they're starting to do that work, but it is very slow going uh, and, and hard going. And so... interested in your comments about um, about some of what hap- what's happening is because of us that I think it's and, and through this series I think it's been a little bit comforting to some folks that we're talking institutional racism and somehow that's not me personally that's some big nameless institution and that somehow those big institutions have to change in order for this problem to get solved but I think it's interesting because you mentioned elected judges I think you know, we hear lots and lots of candidates running for office. There's lots of stuff put out there. I hear a whole lot less about who's running for a judgeship and what their position is on things. And I dare say that, you know, I know folks who just don't vote for judges because they have no clue who they should vote for. And yet that may be one of the most important votes that they make in, in their community. And I think also when it comes to folks that 
that I know who would consider themselves pretty liberal, for lack of a better word, get a little squirrely when we start talking about being tough on crime because they're real liberal until we talk about somebody breaking into their house. Mm -hmm. And then that gets a little too personal and that gets a little upsetting. And so I think that that while it is, um, you know, while there, there is certainly an institutional problem, that the, the optimistic thing to me about your whole argument here is that, that there, are, there are things that individual people can do now that make this system different by how they respond in voting for folks based on their position on crime, particularly when you're talking about places that have elected prosecutors and elected judges, because those folks are the people that are gonna make the decisions. And and they get lots of kudos for saying they're tough on crime. I you know, my guess is it'd be very, very hard for somebody to get elected who stood up and honestly said, you know, I, I think we way over have rated this thing. I you know, I don't really think we need to be all that tough on crime. I don't know that you could get elected no matter what party you were running for if that was your platform. But I think it's like any other societal institutional issue, which is that that when you, on the face of it, nobody wants to say, well, of course, I don't think we should be tough on crime. But when you play it all the way out to its logical conclusion, what does that really mean, being tough on crime? And what does it mean in terms of, of the statistics are terrible, that our system doesn't work. It, you know, us being tough on crime isn't stopping crime. So I think for people to get a lot more logical in their thinking about what does that really mean, and if the end result is you don't want your house broken into, maybe there's a much better way to reach that end than just arresting a whole bunch of people and putting them in jail. Yeah. Well, and well, thank you, and and I I ag agree with a lot of that. Um, I, you know, nobody wants their house broken into, but occasionally someone does break into your house, and then the question is, what do we do about that? What you know, what do we do as Christians? Uh, with someone who has wronged us, what do we do as concerned members of the community? What do, you know? What do we what do we do with that person? Is that person have they forfeited their right to be a part of our community for that wrong act that they did, or are they somebody who we should try and figure out how we can restore them? <clears throat> you know, what is it? What is it that got them there? Um, and and what is it? What is it that we can do uh, to help straighten them out? I know there are mean people. I've represented I've, I've, I've mean people, and I have been around uh, 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 some mean people, only a few of which were judges. But, <laughs> uh, but we've got a real problem. You know, when we've got 2.25 million people in prison, no matter what anybody tells you, the great majority of those people are not in there for any violent activity at all. No violent activity at all. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's crazy. It's not good for us. It's a drag on the economy. And it's bad in every respect except it plays to white anxiety about their safety. And so it's a good political issue. That, that's the whole story of the, why we still have a death penalty. I mean, we haven't had an execution in North Carolina in almost 10 years. Um, but we still, we're still spending millions and millions of dollars every year pretending, basically, that we have the death penalty. And it's because politicians believe that's what you all want. If they believed you didn't want that, it would change in six weeks. You're the only ones holding it back. So, and the same thing with, 
with access to the courts. The same thing with all of this stuff. If our leaders get the impression that, in fact, this is what we want, they're happy to do what we want. They don't care. They just want to get reelected. So, so we, we got to give them the message. Um, I have enjoyed this series enormously, but I am about to break out in a rash for the lack of a suggestion about something specific that I can do to attack this problem. I accept that I'm part of the, the problem, so what can I do to be part of the solution? Have you have been to the Racial Equity Institute training? Uh, I've signed up for May 9 and 10, so I'm ahead. Boom! Step one. Okay, that's step one. But beyond that, I mean... Well, let me, let me just, let me, I'm just, I'm going to give you a little advanced training from the Racial Equity Institute. Right. And this is another thing about us white people. We don't mind being told there are problems and that we're responsible for those problems in a lot of ways. But the hell if we're going to sit with that feeling of responsibility for more than five minutes. Yeah. Heck no, let's fix it. There's no quick fix. And so the first step for us white people is to feel bad about this for a while, not just feel bad, but to understand it and to understand, yeah, we might feel bad. It's, it's a heck of a lot worse to be a black person on the side of what I'm talking about than be a white person who goes home and says, I feel bad about this. So sit with that discomfort because I, th I think that discomfort is, is helpful. And so you're not doing nothing when you think about this and when you go home and you, you know, talk to your friends about this. Uh, and, and they're going to say, what is up? All she ever talks about is a race now. What happened to her? Um, be like that. You know, that's, that's the first step. We, we've got some people in here who've done that, as a matter of fact. I know for a fact. Yes. If I could put in a plug for the community city working group, let's just... I'm glad you asked that because I was just looking at this sign, how can I make a difference? This series called Doing Our Work came out of the Community City Working Group, which is a group of about 20 people who have been meeting every Monday with the mayor, Reverend Johnson, and others to discuss policing in Greensboro and what needs to be done. We had Michelle Alexander come and, and give a talk here. So we've been holding, as you know, meetings in each district of Greensboro to discuss this, to get feedback. There's one more left. It's Wednesday night of this week at New Garden Friends, how do you say, the meeting? Meeting. Go if you can at 6.30 to approximately to 8.30. Then as a sum up of these five meetings, and we've been doing the poster paper and going to summarize what people have been saying when they report back, we're going to convene a town meeting of all the districts and everybody. And at that, we hope to pull out some very concrete things from you all. Now just think about these, I don't know how much, I know you felt outraged like I did at these basically unfair, cheating, racist things. In a way, that's what racism is, cheating is not being fair to everybody. Think what we could do. We could make it clear, because it doesn't seem to be clear, that police officers, their superiors, their internal affairs divisions, and the district attorneys can't lie. City Don't you know from your work how much lying takes place from DAs? You've seen the evidence that's withheld 
that allows a person to be convicted. And we should figure out and can figure out now a way that police body video camera can and should be released to the public with proper safeguards so nobody's privacy is violated and criminal investigations don't get tainted or, or ruined because but the public needs to hold accountable. And we could create, I think, an independent citizens review board to review police conduct. We can do those things, and but it's got to be a people's thing. And that's not to set aside what Ty said about we need to feel some of this pain and discomfort about the racism. And let it start with love. Let it move to moral outrage and move from moral outrage into concrete action around which we can build, there's a term out there, a united front. We don't disagree on so many things. But Wednesday nights, the meeting, we think the end of May or early June, we want to have this town hall meeting. Please come, tell all your friends, and let's pack it and try to do some concrete things here. And I think there were some more questions. Yeah. 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 And I would just say education. I would say, you know, going to a forum like this is, is good, but this is, this is just such a tiny amount. And it, just to be one more discouraging word is, you know, our nation's history is littered with white people trying to do things to help black people that didn't help black people. People who, in fact, want to help. I'm not talking about the ones that are trying to do bad. I'm talking about the ones that are trying to do good. And so we have to be, we have to be very humble about our, before we do something to make sure that this is one of those exceptions to the general rule, which is we do something and either it ends up benefiting us more than it ends up benefiting black people or it ends up hurting black people. And so that's, that, that's my final discouraging word. Uh, <laughs> For the yeah, night. Just time for one more. It's almost 8:30. At the risk of oversimplification, to answer you about what can we do, it's just one word: vote, and get one other person to vote, and vote the you know what's out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, and be be informed. A lot of these things are not easy to understand. A lot of these things, I was a you know. I was in the middle of the system for a long time before I real, you know, had the realizations that I, you know, I'm sharing with you. And so you don't have to be. So why would people who are, you know, just going about their business being nice people know know this? You aren't going to know it unless you go out of your way to know it. But it's like buying a new car. You buy a new car, all of a sudden you notice all the other cars like your car out there, and once you see. Once those blinders are off and you see the way our systems are operating, then you're going to keep seeing it unless you make, unless you make an effort to put those blinders back on. So stick with it. Uh, 70 seconds is not a question. Uh, when Leonard Pitts was here um, a while back, a question was asked to him, what, what one thing would you say that white people can do to make the situation uh, to turn this situation around. And his response was, we need to learn our history. So one thing that you can do, one thing that you can do on the first, second, and fourth Thursdays of the month of April is come to First Presbyterian Church 
and watch Race, the Power of an Illusion. It's a PBS series. It's about 10 years old. It is spectacular. It's a spectacular first step start to learn about racism and about how artificial a construct race is, the pseudoscience of race, and how it has become institutionally baked into the cake of our society. <coughs> Come learn. We want you there. That is a great series. I also want to remind everyone that we have one more program in, in this doing our own work series. A month from now, the first Monday in May, we will have a presentation on colorblindness. Oh, yes. 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 Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all.